Our two wonderful passages for today's reading are, on, are printed on the news sheet. Uh, you might like to follow them there. The first is from Luke 15, uh, starting at verse 1, the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who squandered all your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because the, father, the brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then from the first letter of John, uh, chapter 1 from verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name's Natalie Rosner and I'm the Associate Minister here at St Jude's. It's lovely to be back with you this morning after I was on my way to General Synod last Sunday morning. As Alex said, this is the third week in our series on the cross, and we're thinking about this topic of being forgiven, Jesus forgiving our sins. I wonder what's your initial response as you hear that theme. If you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been around churches for a while, this might be something that you feel pretty familiar with. The fact that Jesus forgives our sins might might be of great comfort to you. It may have had real significance for you, particularly at different points in your life. On the other hand, while this is something that you believe, Jesus forgiving our sins might have become a little bit like a comfy old armchair. Part of the furniture, definitely something that you would never get rid of, but not much thought about or used. We pray a prayer of confession each week at church. We're reminded of the forgiveness of our sins in Christ and you might not think about it much more than that. If we think more broadly outside our church and our Christian community, I think Jesus' offer of forgiveness for sins is quite a foreign one. Forgiveness isn't an idea that I hear much spoken about in the secular media or in our community. We talk about other ideas that intersect with forgiveness. I hear more about reconciliation. We hear about apologies. Both of those ideas are related to forgiveness. But what I hear in media and other places isn't often linked to forgiveness. You might have heard our society described at the moment as being outrage culture or cancel culture. Those descriptions I think are quite apt and neither of them really leave much room for forgiveness. But as we think about Jesus forgiving our sins, it's not just forgiveness that's an odd idea an unusual idea. Sin is an even odder one. It's, it's a word that's either absent in our public narrative or else trivialised. Sometimes I hear the phrase seven deadly sins. Usually it's in a kind of literary context or in a food context. So the other day I was on Netflix and I saw that there's a Japanese manga Netflix series called The Seven Deadly Sins. I don't know if anyone's watched it. A while ago, Magnum had a seven deadly sins ice cream range. 
And the other day I was doing a search and uh, for, some, for chocolate, chocolate cake. Uh, somehow chocolate and sin often end up in the same sentence. And I found a post that was 10 best chocolate sin cake recipes. These sin references are a long way from the truth of what sin is in the Bible. We're really living in a secular cultural vacuum when it comes to ideas of both forgiveness and of sin. And that probably doesn't help us as Christians either uh, as we try and understand forgiveness of sins for ourselves or as we try and communicate that to other people. So what does it mean to say that on the cross Jesus forgives our sins? I guess the initial question is whether we actually have a sin problem. And you might have noticed in our reading from 1 John, uh, it certainly seemed to flag that there's a problem. 1 John 1 verse 8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. It's pretty blunt, isn't it? John says we have a sin problem. None of us is without sin. All of us have sinned. In fact, if we say we don't sin, we're lying to ourselves. And if we say we don't sin, we also misrepresent God. We contradict his claim that we do, in fact, sin. So let's just run with this idea for a bit. Let's take on board what John says, that we all sin. How do we see this in our lives and in our world? I want to share a little about two radio segments that I've heard over the last uh, couple of years. These both stuck in my mind. They were both on 774 actually. The first was an interview between John Fain and someone in the corporate world about bullying. There'd been a big report done on bullying uh, to assess what progress was being made in reducing bullying in all sorts of spheres, in the workplace, uh, in community sport, in schools, a whole lot of areas. And the report had investigated lots of mechanisms that had been put in place to address bullying. They'd looked at training. They'd looked at uh, what complaint mechanisms had been established. They'd looked at mechanisms for dispute resolution and reconciliation. Lots of money had been spent and there'd been some progress. It wasn't all bleak. But in the end, the tone of the interview was really sombre. Both John Fain and his guest felt really stumped by why there was still a lot of bullying being reported. They didn't understand why hadn't all of the money that had been spent, all of the training, everything else that had been tried, why hadn't that completely eliminated bullying from all these different spheres they were looking at? The second interview was just a couple of weeks ago. Raf Epstein was interviewing a photographer. This was a, a Melbourne local, actually. He started photography as a teenager when he was photographing his friends skateboarding at Camberwell High School. But he's an international photographer now and he had just been in Ukraine a couple of weeks earlier. He'd taken some photos of a little boy and talked to this boy about his experience of the war. He was obviously and understandably devastated by what he had seen and heard. Raf asked him if he thought his photographs would make any difference. 
His answer was bleak and short, no. No, he said he didn't think his photographs would make any difference. He didn't think exposing the horrors of this war would make any difference. But still he took his photos because he said he had to look at himself in the mirror each morning. Brothers and sisters, why do we have intractable bullying in our communities? Why do wars weave their way inexorably through human history? Why are some governments corrupt? Why are some systems corrupt? Why are some individuals corrupt? Why do some people live lives broken by poverty and homelessness? Why do we need a criminal justice system? Why do so many of us have broken relationships? Why do we hurt those we love the most? Why do some churches implode with conflict? It would be nice if we could always blame someone else for these problems. But the difficulty is that evil isn't confined to any one group. As the Russian dissident and novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And Jesus got there first. He claims that every human heart has the potential for all kinds of sin, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, in Matthew, 19, in Matthew 15, verse 19. When I was in primary school, I had a friend, Larissa, and I spent heaps of time at her place. We used to spend hours swimming, we played table tennis, we'd spend hours bunkered down in her bedroom. I remember being there one day and her mum had made some kind of sweet pie. It looked like uh, a custard pie. Uh, I didn't know what it was, I was a bit intrigued, and so I stuck my finger in. <laughs> what else would you do? Uh, after I did that, I was a bit mortified to notice that it wasn't a runny pie, it was set, and so the finger mark just kind of stayed there in the pie. A little bit later, her mum asked us who stuck their finger in the pie. I said, it wasn't me. I think all of us have an it wasn't me approach to sin to some extent. As a whole, our society points the finger at others. Individually, we are also defensive about our own behaviour. But as John writes, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. How do we get there? How do we claim to be without sin? I think it's a gradual thing a gradual thing, we define sin in ways so that it doesn't apply to us. We compare ourselves selectively with other Christians. We might lament their faults, we might critique them, condemn them. We're hard on ourselves and we go, uh, we're hard on others and we go easy on ourselves. We find excuses for our own conduct, we explain it away. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 that we look at the speck of sawdust in our brother's eyes and pay no attention to the plank 
in our own eye. John's assessment of people is very blunt here in 1 John 1, but it rings true for me. Each of us has a sin problem. So if we do have a sin problem, you might wonder, couldn't we just try harder? This is the narrative of secular materialism, the hope that humanity is constantly improving itself and one day we'll get there, there being the place where our lives and our societies are just as we want them to be. Couldn't we just try harder not to sin? Couldn't we just try hard to get rid of sin? A while ago, I had a bit of a makeup fail. I was driving somewhere, sitting at a red light and putting on mascara, as I regularly do. And uh, I dropped the mascara brush with all of its mascara on it onto my lap. It landed on my knee, just, just above my knee, and I had uh, light, uh, long trousers on. So I had a dark brown mascara stain on these light trousers. This is not fun to try and get rid of. I did everything I knew how to do. I sprayed, I soaked, I washed, I washed again, I talked to friends, I tried all of their methods, all of their techniques. The stain faded a bit, but I couldn't get rid of it. When it comes to sin, trying harder will never get rid of the stain. Please don't mishear me. Thinking back to those radio interviews, we should keep trying. Programs to get rid of bullying are really important. Having reporters who go and take photographs in devastating war situations is essential. We need to hear. But human sin means that these responses to those problems won't ever completely solve them. If we want to deal with our sin, we need help. Sin destroys people and it ruins communities, but it isn't just a problem between people. Sin is primarily a problem between us and God. Romans 3 verse 23 expresses it well. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John Stott also expresses it well when he writes that the essence of sin is hostility to God. The essence of sin is hostility to God. So sin isn't just about us damaging other people or us damaging our world. Much more than that, sin in, in its essence is about us damaging our relationship with God by disobeying him. And so this means we do need help from God with our sin. In fact, we need forgiveness for sins because sin is about his hostility to God. As we mull over the idea of Jesus forgiving our sins on the cross, by his death on the cross, you might wonder why that was necessary. Nobody's death is necessary before we forgive each other. So why does God make so much fuss about forgiving us? Why is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross necessary so that he can forgive us for our sins? We heard earlier in our reading from 1 John that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. This is a really fundamental truth and John puts it both positively and negatively. Positively, God is pure and unadulterated light. Negatively, in him there isn't even a speck of darkness. This metaphor of God as light is quite common in the Bible and it's used in two ways. One is as a symbol of revelation. 
Those who lived in darkness have seen a great light, as we hear in Matthew 4, quoting from Isaiah 9. The other way light is used is as a symbol of God's perfect holiness. We read a little bit from Isaiah 6 a couple of weeks ago. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And in the context of this passage from 1 John, it's God's perfect holiness, his moral purity that John has in mind. The passage isn't about our illumination, but about our sanctification. And the question behind it all is this one. How can sinful human beings live in the presence of the God of perfect holiness and purity? John Stott again writes this. God's love is holy love, which yearns over sinners while at the same time refusing to condone their sins. At the cross, Christ bore the judgment we deserve in order to bring us the forgiveness we do not deserve. Going back to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we read this amazing resolution of our sin problem. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here we have a courtroom image and God the Father is the judge, a daunting prospect since he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He demands perfect holiness, righteousness. But the good news is that we have the best lawyer in the universe to plead our case, to speak to the Father on our behalf. His plea is unanswerable since he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and our sentence has already been discharged. The price has been paid. As we heard a few weeks ago from Alex, the cross of Christ is our atonement. His death removes, removes our sin and its penalty. And we read here that Jesus is also our advocate. He speaks for us. He pleads our case, ensuring the verdict of acquittal, ensuring a declaration of righteousness. On the cross, friends, Jesus has forgiven us. He has removed the dark stain of our sin. There's a similar image in Isaiah chapter 1. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Take a moment to soak this in. The words you spoke that you most regret the decision you long to undo, the action you took that you wish you never had, that moment in your life that you sometimes relive with shame. For all of this, Jesus offers forgiveness through his death on the cross. If you trust in Jesus, your scarlet sins are now as white as snow. And so we have a choice, friends. It's a choice between living in the light and living in darkness. Our family moved to Melbourne from Sydney 10 years ago and at the time there was one question that was repeated very frequently by our old friends in Sydney as well as by our new friends in Melbourne. And that question was, which city is better? Which do you like best, Sydney or Melbourne? 
Now, we've been here for 10 years. Hopefully we finally uh, qualify as being Melburnians and of course Melbourne is our favourite city. <laughs> uh, there's, there's one uh, odd reason that we prefer Melbourne uh, better than Sydney. There are lots and lots of reasons but this is an odd quirky little reason and that is cockroaches. Now uh, I've hardly seen a cockroach in Melbourne I have to say and when I do see one it's kind of a cute tiny little thing. But cockroaches in Sydney are something completely different. They are big, they are ugly, they're black. When you stand on them, they, stand on them, they squelch everywhere. Horrible. My most memorable cockroach moment in Sydney was one night leading a Bible study and a cockroach flew right at my face. I didn't even know they could fly till then. Uh, my Bible went flying in one direction and I went flying in the other uh, and I don't really know what happened with the cockroach. But I think the worst time to encounter cockroaches is in the dark. They love the dark, which means late nights and early mornings are very risky when it comes to cockroaches. It also means that one surefire way of getting rid of them is to turn on the light. They hate the light and they go scuttling away. This passage urges us not to be cockroaches, not to live in darkness, but rather to live in the light, to keep making the choice to live in the light. We do that by repenting and confessing our sin, by admitting to God, God when we have fallen short of his glory, by saying it was me when we disobey him. We do that by being like the sun in Luke chapter 15, by turning to God, by returning to him and saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. At this point, there's another interesting question that pops into our minds potentially to reflect on. If Jesus' death was the atoning sacrifice for our sins, as we've read in 1 John chapter 2, then why do we need to keep confessing our sins again and again? Surely our sin has been dealt with once and for all. Colossians 2 says this really clearly. Chapter 2, verse 13 of Colossians. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. God forgave all our sins in Jesus' death on the cross. According to Paul, all our sins, past, present and future, were forgiven when we were made alive with Christ. Our entire record of debt was nailed to the cross. When Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, he didn't leave any unborn. This is the wonderful truth of justification. When we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection, we experience God's once-for-all verdict of righteousness. If I commit my life to Christ, I am justified. He treats me just as if I'd never sinned. Some of you might have been taught that way of remembering what justification means as well. God declares us innocent and righteous before him. But still, John can say to us, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
the reason for John's words is that the truth of justification doesn't mean that everything we do in our justified state is acceptable to God. It's not. We all still sin. And the New Testament doesn't think our once-for-all forgiveness, our justification, conflicts with the need for ongoing renewal, for ongoing forgiveness and resulting change in our lives, our sanctification. What we see in John is a call to a lifelong pattern. As we walk in the light as justified people, we see our sins more clearly. As we see them more clearly, we're called to confess them. As we confess them, God is faithful to forgive over and over again because of Jesus' death on the cross. Friends, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The reason we confess our sins again and again isn't because we need to be re-saved. Justification is permanent. Rather, confessing our sins reminds us that there is more than that to salvation. Salvation also involves being sanctified, being made like Jesus, being treated as sons and daughters of God. Every parent is well and truly aware of both the strengths and weaknesses of their children. As our Father, God knows our remaining sin. He wants us to be aware of it too so we can fight it and so we can confess it, so we can be forgiven. But we need to realise that God sees our sin not as an angry critic but rather as our loving Father. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to regularly confess your sins. Whatever your sin, God's forgiveness is freely available as you repent and confess. And no sin is beyond God's forgiveness. So friends, what is your struggle with sin? A pattern of anger or impatience? Confess your sins. A struggle with pornography? Confess your sins. Greed? a lack of generosity, confess your sins. Sexual impurity, being in a sexual relationship outside marriage, confess your sins. Unwholesome talk, gossip, slander, lies, confess your sins, friends. And let me say at this point that confession isn't just about glib words that slide off our tongues. Confessing our sin to God involves sorrow for what we have done wrong. It involves a desire to turn away from that behaviour, to live in obedience to God in that particular aspect of our lives. Repentance and confession go hand in hand. Confess your sins knowing with great confidence that God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In Luke 15, when the son came back to the father, we have a beautiful uh, model, a beautiful picture of God's forgiveness. The son came back saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And the father there in Luke 15 welcomes his son. He restores his repentant son. There's a feast to celebrate. There's rejoicing in their restored relationship. 
If we have put our trust in Jesus, we also rejoice in our restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. So let me wrap up with a couple of reflections on living forgiven lives with him. First of all, be assured in Christ, friends, God forgave your sin. God forgave all your sins. If you trust in Jesus, God sees you just as if you'd never sinned. This is the beautiful truth of justification. God forgave us our sins when we put our trust in Jesus and were made alive with him. Secondly, 1 John calls us to a lifelong pattern of confessing our sins. We do this confident that when we confess our sins, God will forgive us because of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, our advocate with the Father and our atoning sacrifice. So let me encourage each of us to build a pattern of confession into your life. Here at St Jude's, you might have noticed that we pray a prayer of confession each week and each week we are assured of uh, our forgiveness as we do that. And we include those prayers each week to remind us uh, that we need uh, to build confession into our lives to remind us of our ongoing need for God's forgiveness of our sins. As well as that, maybe today you might think about how you can build a pattern of uh, confessing your sin into your own life in other ways. Spending time in prayer reflecting on your life is a good start. Reflecting prayerfully on your behaviour, on your words, on the decisions you've made, on your motivations. Asking God to help you see your sin is important. Perhaps you have a prayer journal where you could incorporate some kind of reflection like this. Reflection, repentance, confession and also a reminder that our forgiveness has already been won in Christ's death on the cross. Maybe you have a prayer partner who you could do this with in some way. I know some families, and we used to do this, would pray teaspoon prayers together, a TSP prayer. Thank you, sorry, please. We would pray thank you prayers and uh, please prayers out loud together and we would pray sorry prayers silently in our heads to God. I'd love to hear if you have other ways that you've incorporated confessing your sin into your regular time with God. Thirdly, let's commit to living together as a community of forgiveness. Ephesians 4 encourages us to forgive one another just as we have been forgiven. Ephesians 4 verse 32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Being people who forgive each other is a real mark of Christian community. It's hugely countercultural. It's hugely significant. So friends, let's take this seriously. If you need to ask someone for forgiveness here at church, please do. If you need to forgive someone here at church, please do. I want to acknowledge as well that while that can sound simple, there's a complexity around relationships, isn't there? So that process of forgiving and being forgiven might take some conversation, some understanding, some prayer together. It might take some time, but let me encourage us to be committed to that process. Friends, everyone realises our world has terrible problems. Every faith community, every secular community, we all name it in different ways. We all respond in different ways. 
As Christians, we trust God's naming of that problem as sin. We acknowledge ourselves as part of the problem. But God in Christ offers us forgiveness as we repent and confess our sins. We can't fix everything in this world. We can't eradicate sin and its effects. But individually and together, we are called to live forgiven lives, to live forgiving lives in anticipation of the time when Jesus, our King, will return. Then uh, he will destroy sin once and for all. He will transform this whole creation into something perfect and new. We're going to finish there, but I'm going to lead us now in a time of confession as a way of uh, reflecting on what we've just heard from 1 John. We're going to do this time of confession a little bit differently than usual. Hopefully everyone received a white card like this when you came in. It was in your news sheet. If you didn't get a news sheet or you can't find it, some of our lovely welcomers will uh, pick up some of the white cards from out the back and walk up and down handing them out. So maybe pop your hand up if you don't have a white card. I'm going to give us a little bit of time to reflect and then on this white card I would like you to write uh, a sin uh, that you would like to confess to God today, something that you would like to bring to him. Now we're not going to write this in pen because this is private between you and God. You could do this at home in pen if you wanted to, but here I thought this morning uh, we would write with our finger. Now that's a little unusual, but some of you might have signed on a screen or a a phone, uh, and so this is something that we sometimes do with technology. So I'm going to give us a moment to reflect and then ask you just to write maybe one word on your card, something that you would like to confess to God. And we can do this, friends, confident that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So friends, take a moment to reflect and if you would like to, write your word on your card. Your card, because that sin has been forgiven and dealt with. You can take the pieces home if you like as a reminder that God has forgiven you that sin or you can just pop them in the bin on the way home. God has forgiven us our sins. Praise the Lord. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. We're going to stand and sing now.